And good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Do you have your Bibles? Good. Ephesians chapter 3 is where you need to go. As you're turning there, I remind you what we talked about last week as we saw Paul begin to try to voice a prayer for the church at Ephesus. As he began along those lines, he got distracted and went off on a tangent. It was a good and glorious tangent that he went on as he began to talk about the mystery that God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself, that God in Christ is reconciling men to each other across all kinds of divides that separate us, specifically making Jews and Gentiles into one new man, one new family, one new nation. He spoke of this mystery, and we know that Paul was a living proof of that ministry, a living demonstration of that mystery that he was one who was saved, who was reconciled to God and forgiven of his sins. He was one who was changed. He was given a whole new outlook and a whole new way of living, and he was called on a mission. He was giving, given a commission to take the gospel specifically to the Gentiles, to the nations ultimately, and he was faithful to that calling. We talked about how the mystery demands the mission, and Paul began to articulate after saying that he had received this mystery, he began to talk about what his mission was, and he gave us some pretty good details about three parts of his mission. Number one, he said he was called by God to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ to the Gentiles, to go to the Gentiles and talk about the riches of the Messiah for them the anointed one, the chosen one, the savior for them. And he did that, right? Every place he went, he was speaking to people about the riches, the unfathomable riches of Christ. He was also called to make known the mystery of the church to all men, right? To talk about the importance of the church and to paint this picture of one family, one body coming together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then finally, the third thing he said was his mission was to make known the wisdom of God to the cosmic powers that through the church, God is displaying his wisdom, his multifaceted wisdom to the cosmic powers. Even the angels, good angels and bad angels, look on at the church and they learn something about the wisdom of God. And we talked about how important then the church is in the plan of God, in the redemptive plan of God. The church is a very central player in all of that, that we are to teach the world and the cosmic powers something of the wisdom of God. And that's heavy. That's heavy for us. And it, it makes us need to be very careful how we're living and how we're working together as a church. The question was, what are we teaching the angels? What are we teaching the world about the wisdom of God? We also talked about this cycle of missions that those of us who have received so much, like Paul had received so much, so much grace, so much blessing, so much revelation, that we can't just keep it to ourselves. The plan of God was never just to give these things to us, to, to give the Holy Spirit to us in our hearts, to give us forgiveness of sins and redemption. The plan was never just to give that to us and let us sit by and do nothing. The plan was always to give that to us and then send us out to, to share it with others, right? Um, it was never just to, to keep it ourselves and to keep it uh, hidden, but to shine that light out so that others may see, so that they may hear the gospel, so that they might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. This week, what we're going to see is Paul's going to get to the actual content of the prayer. And this passage is so rich. It is so good. We want to take it a little bite at a time. The last couple of weeks, we have bitten off more than we could chew in our time together. And so this week, we're going to just bite off just the tiniest little bit. And we're going to really savor it. And we're going to enjoy it. And we're going to work pretty slowly over the next couple of weeks, maybe even three weeks, through the end of chapter 3. And we want to savor all of these things that God has to say to us uh, through Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3. So check it out. 
starting in verse 14 today. We're going to read through the end of chapter 3, but we're really only going to look closely at verses 14 and 15. And then we're going to spend some time uh, praying, spend some time applying what we are going to learn today from God's word. So look at it. Chapter 3, verse 14 says this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this. Thank you for this glorious, rich passage that you've given to us. And I pray that you'll help us as we study today. Help us to learn what you would have us to learn. Open our ears to hear from you. Open our hearts to receive your message. God, thank you for this opportunity even now to come to you in prayer. And I pray today that you teach us how to pray. We, we want to have the heart of the disciples to come before you and say, Lord, teach us to pray. I thank you that you taught Paul how to pray. Paul was a prayer. And I pray that you help us to learn from his example today. And not just, not just learn and understand things in our heads, but God, learn and understand with our hearts and with our lives, put these principles into action. God, I pray even today, even this morning, as we close the service, that we would be a praying people. And not just for this one moment today, but as we leave this place and in every moment, that we will be a praying people. A praying people who come into your presence with confidence and boldness and with respect and with reverence. God, thank you that you invite us in. Thank you that you've made the way to come into your presence through your son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose again and gives us life and hope and reconciles us to you. God, thank you for Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to talk a lot about prayer today. As we look at the introduction to this prayer, what we need to understand is that not only are we going to learn a lot from this text, just as it stands alone, it's rich and it's instructive to us, and Paul is a great example in prayer. What we need to see as we zoom out from this prayer is that it's really going to serve as a transition between the two main parts of the letter to the church at Ephesus. The first part has to do with instruction. It has to do with indicative statements. Paul is teaching them a lot of doctrine. He's teaching them a lot of theology, especially in chapter 2, right? Chapter 2 is dynamite as Paul talks about you were dead in your trespasses and sins, all of that bad news. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. You remember that? It is by grace you have been saved. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. All of that good news he taught us about vertical reconciliation to God. He instructed us about those things. Then he instructed us. He informed us about the reconciliation that happens between us in Christ. That Christ is breaking down the barrier walls that divide us. He's making the two into one new man, and he's bringing us together as one new family, and he instructed us about all of those things. Well, this prayer is going to make transition from that instruction into the second half of the letter that is application. 
And it's good to find that transition. It's good to strike that balance even as we teach here in Sunday school and in worship. We want to give good instruction. We want to give good understanding of theology and doctrine. And we want to then apply those things to our lives in a practical way. We get ourselves in trouble when we, have, when we have one and not the other. If we try to just go straight to application and say, this is what you need to do, this is how you need to live, but we don't build that on the truth of who we are in Christ and what God has done for us in Christ, then we leave you with some legalism, some self-righteousness, and it is empty. And at the same time, if we only talk about doctrine and theology, about what God has done for us in Christ and who we are in Christ, but we never get to application, we just get to be really smart folks. We just get to write textbooks about theology and never become disciples of Christ. And so we want to follow the example of Paul in Ephesians and lay a good foundation of doctrine and theology and understanding of who we are in Christ and what God has done in Christ. And then we want to say, now, this is how you live as a result of that. And what Paul is going to do in this prayer is he's going to pray that God would give them strength and power to react, to live out the things that he has taught them in the first three chapters. Does this make sense? And so we want to be making that transition even in our heads as we move into the second part of Ephesians through this prayer that we are going to get more intensely practical in the second half of Ephesians. We're going to talk about how to live as husbands and wives. We're going to talk about how to live as children. We're going to talk about how these truths that Paul has articulated so clearly, how they impact our lives as we move to the second part. But Paul's not going to move there without asking God to help us move there. And so we need to see it that way as we zoom out. Paul is saying, God, help us as we move into the application of all of this. First thing I want you to notice in this text is that Paul is a prayer. And if you read his letters, if you read his writing, you will know that Paul was a prayer. It was an important part of his life. It was an important part of his daily discipline, of his walk with the Lord. He was a prayer. And he learned it from his master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself was a prayer. It's one of the things that strikes me uh, strongly when I read through the Gospels is that Jesus was constantly praying. He was constantly trying to get away from everybody and spend time with the Father, praying to the Father. He would try to get away from everybody and spend time in prayer. And, and I guess I think if Jesus needs to do that and wants to do that, then I need to do that and want to do that all the more, right? Because he is God, and yet he desires to go to the Father in prayer, and so we should as well. And so I believe that Paul learned his discipline of praying from the Lord Jesus himself. Next, I want you to see from this text that Paul's prayer life was regular and it was disciplined. We learn this not just from this text, but from all of his letters. Go to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to show you several examples of Paul's prayer for the churches that he loves so much. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 8. We'll see that in nearly, in nearly every letter Paul wrote to a church... He talked about his prayers for the church. Sometimes he prayed them directly in the letters, and sometimes he made reference to the prayers that he prayed for these churches. Romans chapter 1, verse 8 says this, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. I want you to notice these, these uh, words like always and unceasing and never-ending. Paul is going to talk about how he's always praying for these churches. Go to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
Again, making the point that Paul's prayer life was regular and it was disciplined. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, he says, I thank you always. I thank the Lord always concerning you. Go to uh, um, Philippians chapter 1. Skip over a few letters. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. This is so good. He says to the church at Philippi, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and in confirmation of the gospel, you, are, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. One more in Colossians chapter 3, chapter 1. Last one. Again, making the point that Paul's prayer life was regular and it was disciplined. He is saying, always, 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 I am praying for you. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day that you heard of it and understood the grace of God, the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God strengthened with all power according to the glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It's a good one to stop on because there are a lot of parallels between Ephesians and Colossians. The prayer that he gives for the church at Colossae is very similar for, as to the prayer that he gives for the church at Ephesians. So again, we want to make the point that Paul's prayer life was regular and it was disciplined. We see that in all of his letters. We even see it here in the book of Ephesians. He is praying for them in chapter 3, verse 14. He has already prayed for them back in chapter 1. 
He has already voiced one prayer for them that they would understand, that they would grasp these certain truths. And now he's going to transition from understanding to action. He's going to say, we don't just want you to have this grasp on the truth. We want you to have power to act on this truth. Paul was a prayer and he was praying with regularity and with discipline. Paul often prayed for the church. He would pray for the church's leaders. He would pray for the church's members. He would pray for local churches in particular and their specific needs. We see this in some places. He would pray for them in the specific things that they were struggling with. And then there are other times where Paul would pray for the church globally. He would pray for the church in general. And if I guess what I'm getting at is if Paul was praying that way for the church, if he was concerned like that for the church, we should pray that way for the church. We should pray for its leaders. We should pray for its members. We should pray for local needs here at First Baptist Church. We should pray specifically for First Baptist Church, but not just for First Baptist Church. We should pray for the global church. There are things going on around this world. You see some of them in the news even this week. Our brothers and sisters suffering and struggling in other places of the world even this week. And we need to pray for the church in general, for the church globally, just like Paul did. Paul's prayer life was regular and it was disciplined. The next thing we see in this text is that Paul's prayer life was well informed. Notice he says in verse 14, for this reason, for this reason. And that stretches back all the way to the beginning of chapter 1. He says, based on all of this, based on this mystery we've been talking about, about how God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself, about how God in Christ is reconciling the world to each other, brothers and sisters, bringing them together. He says, based on all of this, Paul's prayer, his life of prayer was based on the truths of the gospel. His prayer life was based on good theology. And I want you to know that if you desire to grow in your prayer life, you also need to be growing in your understanding of the scriptures. You also need to be growing in your understanding of theology. If you want your prayers to be deeper and more profound, if you want that relationship with the Lord to grow that way, you also need to be growing in your understanding of his word. You can't grasp these depths. You can't ascend these heights unless you study his word. So if you want your prayer life to grow, you need to study theology and you need to read the word of God. And you also need to know that when you are studying the word of God and you are studying theology, that it really, it really takes hold when you say, wow, how does this idea, how does this passage affect my prayer life? Have any of you ever experienced that? You're reading some passage or you're studying some theology and you think, whoa, this is going to change the way I pray. Or, or maybe this needs to change the way I pray. I believe that when theology impacts your prayer life, it's then when you really are getting a hold of theology. And so... Paul's prayer life was well-informed. He wasn't just praying, babbling to God. He was praying based on solid truths that God had revealed to him. And we must pray based on solid truths that God has revealed to us in his word. Next thing you need to see about his prayer life is that Paul's prayer life was reverent and it was worshipful. Look at verse 14. It says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He says, I bow my knees. And this is really interesting because kneeling was not the common posture for Jewish people, people from Jewish backgrounds, to pray in. Most of the time when Jewish people prayed to God, they prayed to God standing. They would stand to pray. That's the most common posture you see in all of Scripture. When people are praying to God, they are standing to pray to God. And so when Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, he is saying something pretty significant, and he is revealing something in that posture. Um, there are three things in the Old Testament when we see people bowing, that bowing their knees, that we learn about, about prayer. 
when they bow their knees, when they hit their knees in prayer, it is usually a revelation of great reverence, like a person who knows they shouldn't stand in the presence of this great one. When you came before the presence of a king back in Paul's day or back in uh, Jesus' day or back in Solomon's day, when you came into the presence of a king, you would bow your knees. You would hit your knees. And Paul is, is revealing that same thing when he says, I bow my knees before the Father. He is showing great reverence. He's also showing great submission. That is a posture of submission. When you hit your knees before someone, you are saying, I will do what you tell me to do. I am humbling myself before you, and I trust you. And it's also a revelation of great emotion. In the Old Testament, when we saw people hit their knees in prayer, it was because of overwhelming emotion. Sometimes it was when they lost someone they loved. Sometimes it was right before they went into battle. Sometimes it was at a great celebration of of a dedication of some sort. They would hit their knees because the emotion was overwhelming. And so Paul is saying a lot when he says, I bow my knees. And I want us to learn those things about, about prayer, that prayer needs to be an act of great reverence. It needs to be an act of great submission. It needs to be an act of great emotion. But I want us at the same time to be careful that we don't put all of our emphasis and all of our judgment on the posture of our praying. Does this make sense? I don't want you to think that that you can't pray sitting down. I don't want you to think that you can't offer sincere, vehement prayers sitting down or standing up or lying on your face. The Bible doesn't prescribe any necessary posture for prayer. Praying happens in the scriptures in all kinds of ways. Sometimes people are standing up with their hands raised. Sometimes they're sitting down. Sometimes they're kneeling down. Sometimes they're lying on their face. Sometimes they're lying on their face praying. There are all kinds of postures in which you can pray. And so I don't want you to think that your posture in and of itself is a judgment of how effective or how sincere your prayers are. And I don't want you to, I don't want you to impose any kind of judgment on someone else for the posture in which they pray. In just a little while, at the end of the service, I'm going to invite you to pray. And I'm going to invite you to, to pray in whatever kind of posture you want. And I believe some of you are going to come here to the platform and you're going to hit your knees before the Lord. I believe some of you are going to hit your knees right there at your pew. You're going to turn around and and put your face down on your pew and kneel before the Lord. I think some of you are going to stand up with your hands up and pray to God. I think maybe some of you are going to find a place to lay down on your face and pray to God. And the last thing in the world we need is someone saying, oh, that guy's just sitting. He must not be really praying. Oh, Matt Oshel is just sitting there. He must not be really praying. So-and-so is over here on his face, and Oshel's just sitting there. He must not be very spiritual today. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't judge a prayer based on the posture simply, but know that there's a lot that can be communicated by the posture of praying. Paul's prayer life was, was reverent and worshipful. He bowed his knees in great reverence, in great submission, and with great emotion before the king. But notice also that his prayer life was not just reverent and worshipful. It was also intimate and familiar. Look what he says next. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Before the Father. There's a family connection there. He he doesn't just bow his knees before the king. He doesn't just bow his knees before the God of the universe. He bows his knees before the Father. And it is familiar. That word familiar comes from the root word family. There's a connection there that Paul goes to God in. He goes to God in that relationship. One scholar said it this way. He said, because God is our heavenly father, we do not come to him in fear and trembling, afraid that he will rebuff us or be indifferent. 
We do not come to God to appease him as the pagans do their deities. We come to a tender, loving, concerned, compassionate, accepting father. That's good news, isn't it? That when you come to God in prayer, you bow your knees to God in prayer. When you come before his throne, he's not just the God of the universe who created everything that exists and upholds it by the power of his word. He's your dad. He's your father, the one who loves you and provides for you. Imagine if you were the president's child. You know, if, if I walk into the Oval Office, I walk into the Oval Office with great respect and reverence and awe and wonder and this kind of like, oh, I'm a, I'm a little bit, do I really belong here? Should I really even be in here? But if I'm the president's child and I walk into the Oval Office, I walk in with the same kind of respect because after all, this is the president of the United States, right? And this is my father, but he's my father and he loves me and I have this connection with him. Imagine going to the God of the universe with that kind of connection, with that kind of familiarity, with that kind of love that kind of relationship imagine entering into his presence with boldness and confidence going before your father in prayer i sing a song just a minute ago that, that gets me every time when we sing the one who reigns forever he's a friend of mine oh man that blows my mind right the one who reigns forever the one who is on the throne above all thrones the king of kings and the lord of lords he's a friend of mine <laughs> it's good right He's not just the king. He's not just the judge. He's not just the ruler. He's a friend. And more than a friend, he's our father. And so Paul has this strange dichotomy of his prayer life that needs to be the dichotomy of our prayer lives. That we have reverence and respect and worship, but we have familiarity and intimacy and confidence and boldness as son. Okay? Hang on to that, and we'll see that more in just a minute. Paul's prayer life? was reverent and worshipful. Paul's prayer life was intimate and familiar. He goes on to talk about this family relationship in verse 15. He says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but there's a lot for us to learn. He says that there is one Father, right? One Father overall, and there is one family. And there's a little bit of a play on words here when he talks about Father and family. And it's only a play on words in Greek. And it doesn't make any sense in English. I read a lot about it, and, and I read guys explain it, and it just totally falls apart in the translation. And I experienced this one time in the Dominican Republic, the first time I went. Um, we, were, we were working with a translator, and the translator was talking to this Dominican man. And, and the Dominican man said something, and the translator just cracked up. I mean, just lost his mind laughing. And we were like, oh, tell, tell us this joke, tell us this joke. And he said, no, it's, it's not funny in English. And we said, no, it's got to be, you're, you're dying. I mean, big belly laugh. Don't tell us what it is. And so he translated it literally in English, and we were all like, yeah, that's dumb. What, what does that even mean? Um, so evidently in Spanish there was this connection between these words that was just hilarious that totally fell apart in English. And the same, things same thing happens here in Greek. There's a very clever connection of words in Greek that doesn't have any connection in English. So you, you, you didn't learn anything from that, but now you know. He's stressing the importance of family, that we are one family with one father. He also stresses the importance of this family tie reaching across time and space. Notice what he says in verse 15. From whom every family or the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. In other words, we have brothers and sisters who are not on earth anymore. We have brothers and sisters who are our brothers and sisters because we have the same father who are not here, but they are in heaven. And we're still one family, even though, even though we're separated even by space. 
and time, we are still one family. And we need to remember that as we look around Harrisburg. We need to remember that as we look around the world, that we are one family with our brothers and sisters in the Dominican Republic. We are one family with brothers and sisters all over the planet. Even though we're separated by space, we are still together because we have one father, right? The father is the one who binds us together. He makes his family as our father. I want us to shift now back to the Gospels and listen to Jesus teach us a little bit of how to pray. We've learned a little bit about prayer from Paul's life. We know that he was a prayer. We know that his prayer life was regular and disciplined. We know it was well-informed. We know it was reverent and worshipful. We know that it was intimate and familiar. And we want to learn something about Jesus teaching us to pray. So go to Matthew. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaching us how to pray. In Luke's account of this same uh, setting, it is introduced by the, uh, the disciples coming to Jesus and basically saying, Lord, teach us how to pray. John's disciples, John taught his disciples how to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. And I want that to be the, the cry of our hearts this morning. Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus answers that request, and he does teach them to pray. And look what he says starting in verse 5, chapter 6, verse 5. He says, when you pray, and I want to stop there, that's, a, that's an important point. He doesn't say, if you pray, or perhaps you might pray. To his disciples, he says, when you pray. In other words, he's expecting that their prayer will be regular. It will be disciplined, just like Paul's prayer was regular and disciplined. Jesus assumes that his disciples will be praying people, and he assumes that we will be too. He says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is, in, what is done in secret will reward you. Right? A couple of lessons to learn there, right? Prayer is not about the people who might be watching. Right? If we're going to lay on our face, if we're going to kneel at our pew, if we're going to stand with our hands raised, it is not about the people who are watching. If you want to stand with your hands raised so that everyone looks at you and says, well, they must be super spiritual, then that's all you get. All you get is the praise of those men, and your father is not impressed. When I was growing up, um, my pastor used to go out to dinner with him quite a bit and his family, and he, has a, he had a son who was, I don't know, 10 years old or so, and we would always play this game. The last person to put their thumbs up on the table had to pray, and, it, and if the son, Brandon, uh, was the last one to get his thumbs up, he would make a huge scene about praying, right? If we were at McDonald's or Pizza Hut or wherever, he would say, okay, okay, everybody, it's time to pray, and he would clap his hands like this, and he would pray, and it was just a big spectacle, right? He wanted everyone to look at him and, and pray, and that's what Jesus is saying not to do, not to do. Now, there is a time for public praying. Right? Corporate praying is a time for us to lead one another in prayer when we're gathered together. But we don't do it for the praise of men. Jesus says, don't, don't work that way. The hypocrites work that way. And you don't want to be like them. So be careful as you pray that you don't do what Jesus says not to do there. Look at verse 7. He teaches us more about prayer. He says, and when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. That's good. That's good instruction, right? So don't think that you just come to God and repeat some babble, some meaningless repetition of phrases, and you say it over and over and over and over again, and he'll be just like your parents where you ask for the cookie and ask for the cookie and ask for the cookie and ask for the cookie, and finally they just, take the cookie. Take the cookie. Just leave me alone. It's 
not the way it works with God, right? We don't need to come to him with these meaningless, babbling phrases. We come to him with sincerity in relationship. Notice he says, he's your father. He's your father who loves you. He already knows what you need. Just come before him and speak from your heart to him. Don't be like the hypocrites who come to him with many words. Don't be like them. For your father, your father knows what you need before you ask. And then he gets into the heart of his instruction. And he says, pray then this way. He says, pray like this. This is what it should sound like. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And he adds this. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And so Jesus spends a great deal of time here teaching his disciples how to pray, right? He says, when you pray, don't pray like this. Don't pray like that. Don't pray like those guys. They think the wrong thing. Don't pray like this other group of guys. They think the wrong thing. Pray like this. Our Father, right? Our Father. That is good news. That is a powerful truth, right? He is not just my Father. He's not just your Father. He's our Father. You know what that makes us? family, brothers and sisters. He is our Father, and He is our Father who is in heaven, and His name is hallowed. His name is respected. His name is holy, right? Not just is He our Father whom we have this connection with, but He's the King. He's the one in heaven seated on His throne, and so we have this same dichotomy of reverence and familiarity of worship and respect and boldness and confidence. I heard someone one time say that, that it's good to think of prayer in Scripture in four categories. We see four categories of prayer in Scripture. One is adoration. We certainly see that in the Lord's Prayer, in the model prayer. Hallowed be your name. You're great. You're amazing. You're fantastic. Part of our prayer life should be adoration to God. Part of our prayer life should also be confession confession to God of our sins. God, I have failed. I have broken your commands. I have fallen short of your glory. I have sinned against you. We see lots of prayers of confession in the scriptures. We also see prayers of thanksgiving, right? People say, thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for just being you. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving. And then most of the time, the prayer that we're familiar with is called supplication, where we ask God for something where we come to him with requests. And certainly we see that in the model prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. We see these requests made to God. And I, I'm afraid that sometimes our prayer life is unbalanced. I'm afraid sometimes our prayer life is all supplication. All, all, all of us just going to God and asking him for stuff. Asking him to take care of us like he's a cosmic vending machine. And we put our quarter in and we press the button and out comes the answer. And we don't spend much time in adoration. We don't spend much time in confession. We don't spend much time in thanksgiving. And maybe we need to spend more time in those areas of prayer as we come before him. And we won't have so much time for supplication at the end of it. So Jesus teaches us a lot about prayer. Scripture informs us a great deal about prayer. Paul was a prayer. We learned from, we learned from him about prayer. And if we're going to learn all of this about prayer, we should pray, right? We should spend some time in prayer. Two applications today, and then we're done. Number one. Prayer is communication in a relationship. Prayer is a communication in a relationship. Therefore, there is no need to talk to you about praying if you are apart from Christ. If you are not in Christ, 
and do not have a relationship with God through Christ, if you've not been saved by grace through faith in him, there's really no need for me to talk to you much about prayer or invite you to pray because prayer is contingent upon this relationship. We, we, we can't pray to one we do not know. We can't pray to one we are separated from. And so if you've not been reconciled to God, there's really no need for me to talk to you about how to pray or invite you to prayer. But the good news is God hears prayers of confession and faith all the time. Maybe today is the day you pray to God for the very first time and you go to him and you pray like this, God, I, I'm a sinner and I know I'm a sinner. I've broken your commands and here's how I did it. Here are the specific ways I've fallen short of your glory. And maybe you need to go to him in prayer and say, God, I know I deserve your judgment. I know you're holy and righteous, and I deserve hell because of what I've done. And you need to confess that to him. And maybe you need to go to him in prayer and say, but I believe. I believe that Jesus came to die for me. And I trust that his death, his sacrifice is sufficient. I believe that his blood is effective to cleanse me of my sins. I trust in Jesus' work for my salvation. And you profess in that prayer your faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that he died for my sins. And I believe that he rose again. And I believe that you will save me by grace through faith in him. Maybe you need to go to him and pray for salvation. You need to go to him for the very first time in prayer and say, God, will you save me? Will you forgive me of my sins? Will you make me new? Will you make me whole? Will you give me hope? I believe he hears those prayers. So don't get me wrong. If you're far from God, you cannot pray to him. You cannot pray to him. But you can be brought near by the blood of Christ and have access to him in prayer. And maybe that's your first prayer today. First prayer to God is, God, save me. God, help me. I need you. I'm a mess and only you can change me. And you have done the work in the Lord Jesus Christ. So recognize that prayer is communication and relationship. And if you don't have that relationship, I would encourage you, I would beg you, I would plead to you, be reconciled to God today. Application number two is if you are in a relationship with God through Christ, then pray. And you need to pray in any posture. You can pray there at your seat, standing or sitting or kneeling. You can come here to the front in just a minute and pray standing or kneeling or sitting. Maybe you need to leave this room. Maybe you need to go into one of these classrooms. Or maybe you need to go out in the hallway. Or maybe you need to go outside and spend some time praying to God. Pray anywhere and in any posture. Pray also about any issue. I would encourage you to pray about basic physical and material needs. Don't think that God doesn't care about those things. Those are very real needs, and God cares about those things. Even in the model prayer, he says, give us this day our daily bread. It's a prayer for daily provision. So don't think that those prayers for daily material, physical needs are, are inappropriate, are weak, or something like that. They are necessary, and God cares about those things. So pray about that kind of topic. Pray also about essential spiritual concerns. Some of us have family members who are lost, going to hell. We love them. And we know their names. We need to pray for them. We need to pray that God would reach down to them and save them. We need to pray that he would do like he did for Lydia in, in, in Acts and open their hearts to receive the gospel. We need to pray for our family members and our friends by name for their essential spiritual needs. We need to pray for our friends. We need to pray for our neighbors. I think some of us can look down our street and say, I don't know. I don't know those folks, and I don't know where they stand with the Lord. And so I want to pray for them. We pray for our neighbors. We pray for the nations, billions of lost people, billions of them who've never heard the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to pray that God would, we need to pray to the Lord of the harvest, that he would send workers into his harvest to take the gospel to the nations, to speak 
the truth of Jesus Christ where he has not been spoken before. We need to pray for the nations. Maybe we pray for the church. Maybe we pray for this local church and our needs, our weaknesses, our struggles, our pain. Maybe we need to praise God for this local church and the good things that are going on here and the joys and the victories we experience and the fellowship that we enjoy. Maybe you need to spend this time praying for the local church. Maybe you need to spend this time praying for the global church. We have brothers and sisters who are being persecuted, viciously persecuted right now. Brothers and sisters who cannot meet like this or else they would be killed. Brothers and sisters who have to get together in the darkness and and in hiding and worship and fellowship and study together. We need to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the globe. One scholar said this, he said, one of the best ways to discover a Christian's chief anxieties and ambitions is to study the content of his prayers and the intensity with which he prays them. We all pray about what concerns us and are evidently not concerned about matters we do not include in our prayers. Prayer, he said, expresses desire. And so in just a minute, I'm going to invite you to pray in any way, for anything, in any posture, in any place, and express to God these desires. Come to him with adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication. Pray in just a moment with reverence and with worship. Remember that he is God. He is king. He is Lord. And pray also with intimacy and familiarity. Remember that he's your father and he's your friend and he loves you and wants you to come to him. And pray also with regularity. Don't make this a one-time moment where you have a great moment of prayer, but make this the beginning of a lifestyle of prayer. Be a prayer like Paul was a prayer. Be a prayer like Jesus was a prayer, regular, disciplined, and well-informed. Let's stand together. God, thank you for the time you've given us together around your word. Thank you for the things you've taught us. Thank you for the example of Christ. Thank you for the example of Paul. Thank you ultimately for Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for us. Thank you for the gospel that reconciles us to you and to each other. Thank you for bringing us together as one family under you, our great Father who loves us. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray in all kinds of postures. Teach us to pray with all kinds of concern. Teach us to pray in adoration, in confession, in thanksgiving and in supplication, God, teach us to pray. And you be glorified in that. You desire and delight when your children come to you in need, in prayer, in communication. God, I pray that you are glorified in this. And God, I pray especially for folks who cannot, who cannot approach you with confidence, who cannot approach you with boldness, who cannot approach you with Father, because they're apart from Christ. God, I pray today, I pray today that you show them their need, pray today that you show them your love and your provision for them in Christ. pray today will be the day they come to you for the first time in prayer, expressing, confessing their sin, professing their faith, trust, and dependence on Christ alone for their salvation, walking in submission to your lordship and repenting of their sins. God, I pray today that you'll save men, women, and boys and girls, bring them into relationship with you for your own glory. In Christ's name we pray.